Now, it's a climb to the top. Stories of transformation with Chuck Garcia. Chuck Garcia has climbed some of the world's highest peaks. Chuck Garcia. He's an executive coach. He's a professor at Columbia, LIU. He climbs mountains. He does it all. Chuck Garcia. Yesterday, I was clever and wanted to change the world. Today, I am wise and want to change myself. I'm Chuck Garcia. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. Every Sunday, we feature individuals from all walks of life who have overcome adversity, career challenges, and life's unexpected obstacles. With each guest, we discuss their tale of transformation that helped them to climb their personal mountains of happiness and success. Stories from A Climb to the Top inspire, motivate, and help ignite your transformation so that you may help others to ignite theirs. Keep listening to Talk Radio 77 WABC or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and review this podcast and tell us what you think and leave a five-star review. And now, Chuck Garcia. Picture, if you will, it is the morning of a normal work day. And for many of you, you go about your day, you may go to the gym, you may run an errand, but either way you know your day is going to begin in your office. Now imagine you're going through your routine and completely and unexpectedly, two FBI agents approach you. They flash your badge, their badges, in public view, and they begin questioning you about the activity of your job. The agents then begin spitting out details about your personal life. They know where you were last weekend, They know about your children, your spouse, and your heart is racing and confusion is setting in. What is happening? Then it becomes clear. Those trades, the innocent conversations, the snippets of information, they were not supposed to find out. The dollar amounts of those trades, they were so small. How could the feds know? Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. This scenario may sound like a scene from a movie, but this exact situation that I just described did happen. And it happened to our guest. And a series of events occurred that led up to this they would change his life forever. Please join me this evening in welcoming our guest. His name is Tom Harden, or known as Tipper X. Tom, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. That story sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the interesting part is I know when you hear it from someone else describing it, how does it make you feel? I go back to that day, uh, it was July 8, 2008, when the FBI approached me on the street. And um, it's now, you know, over 11 years, but sometimes it feels like just yesterday. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's put this into context. First, Tom, just, just give, give us your background. Sure. I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, middle-class family. Father uh, worked for Coca-Cola there in Atlanta. Uh, mother was uh, with myself and my two younger brothers. First of my family to attend uh, college outside the South at University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. Uh, in the mid-90s, you typically applied to three schools, your reach, your middle, and your safety. And Wharton was my reach and was waitlisted, but was persistent. And 
uh, got in. And so I was in uh, late 1990s in college, mm -hmm. uh, graduated 1999, right. and started working in investment banking for a few months. And after a few 100-hour um, work weeks, as what often happens in those low-level jobs, right. I got hired by a hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut. Right. And is the situation that I just described, uh, what was the name of the organization? Can you mention them? Uh, it was a small hedge fund that doesn't really, um, it's not around today. So, yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, can you describe the position? What did you do? Sure. So at this hedge fund in Connecticut, I was covering, uh, researching tech stocks. So a lot of trips to Silicon Valley to meet with companies who are headquartered there, um, you know, Intel's, uh, this is before Google, so back, uh, Sun Microsystems, these type of companies. Yeah. And my job as an analyst was to find the best stocks really in the world that we could own in my sector. And as a hedge fund, you can also bet against companies. Right. So to do that, you short stocks. Right. And so to find the worst companies in the world and short those. And the idea is, no matter what the market does, in theory you should be able to outperform if you're picking the right companies. Can I just take a step back for just a moment? What most of our listening audience probably recognize, if you buy a stock at a dollar and it goes to a dollar twenty, and you sell it, you took what's called a long position. Right. But in the hedge fund world, you're able to take a short position just for educational purposes because you've just described. Can you explain that? So to keep it pretty layman's terms, you, you, you borrow shares to short a stock, and if I'm betting, so back in the day, WorldCom was a very popular uh, short position uh, that worked out. And if you're if it stocks at forty dollars and you think it's really worth five dollars, then you you short the stock, you borrow the shares at forty, and you buy them back at five dollars. So you've made that thirty-five dollar profit uh, with the stock going down. Okay. So, but summary here is you were, as part of your responsibility, you were selecting a stock. Right. Whether it went up or down, depending on the direction that you chose, whether it's a buy or a sell, your responsibility was to profit from the transaction. That's correct. Okay, That's got correct. it. And when did you first become aware of what led to this in the context of what we call material non-public information that ultimately, in simple terms, we call insider trading. Can you explain that? Sure. So as a young analyst, it was my job to interview uh, the management teams of these companies in Silicon Valley. And I'd ask you questions, and we'd probably meet multiple times a year, develop a relationship. And by my line of questioning, I'm supposed to be able to figure out, is this a stock I want to own, uh, do nothing, or is a stock I want to short? And it's all supposed to be information that's publicly available uh, that I'm making my investment decision on when I go back and talk to my boss. Now, when we talk about material non-public information, it's illegal to invest in a stock or short a stock if information is non-public and material. So think about non-public being it's not publicly available mm -hmm. uh, on the internet, in newspapers and media. It's not out there for the general public to read about. And it has to be material. And the easiest way to understand that is if a piece of information became public, would it move the stock price? So it's, that's materiality. Right. So for instance, if you know that company A is going to buy company B, and you learn that from maybe a lawyer working on the deal or an accounting firm or a rating agency, mm -hmm. if you get that tip from somebody working on the deal, that's material, non-public information. You cannot make a trade in that stock. If you buy shares of company B before company A acquires it, 
then you profited on material non-public information. So to keep this simple, there is, you just used the word tip. You then received, explain, you received a tip or tips from right. others that was material non-public. Is that what happened? That's right. Um, and so just as an example, if your friend is an attorney um, or an accountant working on a transaction, uh, a merger or acquisition, and they know that company A is going to buy company B, that's, that's information that they can't share. Yet you were in receipt of some of this material non-public information. That's correct. Um, did you know at the time, or did you realize, oh my God, I have in my possession material non-public information, and I'm not supposed to? So to set the stage before I received my tips, and I'll talk about the four tips I received, mm-hmm. um, it became clear to me in my industry uh, certain technology stock-focused hedge funds were blatantly placing trades on this material non-public information, so breaking the law, something they should not mm-hmm. have been doing. Uh, there was a very famous hedge fund manager who's later charged who would blatantly talk about uh, information that he was receiving in a public manner at a conference. We might attend a conference mm-hmm. to hear companies talk and kind of as a bravado type of thing, talk about tips he was receiving. And at the time, I knew this was illegal, but it seemed mm-hmm. like it wasn't being prosecuted. And the Financial Times that year ran an article uh, in 2007 that 60% of mergers and acquisitions or acquisitions, company B's stock price before it was purchased by company A, before that became public, the company B's stock price was going up before right. this information became public. So you could see news articles come out, company A is buying company B, pull up the stock chart of company B and see it running yeah. for a few days. So this types of leaks of this information was going on in the marketplace in 60% of the deals. So I knew that that was going on around me. It was people in my industry who are maybe three to five years older than me. I saw these smaller tribes of people talking to each other at the bars after these conferences that I'd attend and being, and I wasn't part of that group. So ultimately one day in my career, I received one of these tips from an investor I knew. And I knew her up to this point, she'd worked for a gentleman named Raj Rajaratnam, who was the, who was later charged for 11 years for prison for insider trading. I had met her at a conference when I was 23, and I could tell that she was an individual that was always pushing that line for information. And you're going to see she is the individual who tipped me when I was 28 mm. on an illicit insider tip, material, non-public information. And I knew her to be sort of full of rumors up to this point, always calling worth a rumor out of Silicon Valley. So hearing this sort of chatter, that kind of chatter, nothing's illegal, but just sort of full of rumors, we used to call it. Mm-hmm. And then she called me one day and said, I've learned that a company named Kronos, uh, the ticker, the stock ticker is K-R-O-N, is going to be acquired next week, this date, this price, by this private equity firm. And she learned it from an analyst who worked at a bond rating agency named Moody's. So immediately, I know this is not, doesn't sound like a rumor, this sounds like exact information I had never received a call in my life with information so specific. And did you act on it? I waited a few days. So I'm going processing. This sounds like it's across the line. Hmm? Um, When I was talking to a friend, another firm that day, I told him about it. So I hadn't even traded yet, but he was losing money at his firm. And he said, you have anything out there? I'm losing money. It kind of is a throwaway comment. I told my friend what this woman had told me. 
And right there, not to get technical with the law, I've now opened myself up to liability for insider trading because I've tipped this information and I haven't even traded yet. Well, why didn't you stop communicating if you were became aware of that? That's the question I ask about myself that's every day to this day. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and yeah. So ultimately, a few days go by, just to fast forward, I was able to buy in our hedge fund as the junior analyst. I could buy a stock as, less, as long as it was less than 1% of the assets we managed. So if you have a uh, $100 million portfolio of client money, I could buy in the portfolio a position as long as it was less than $1 million, and I didn't have to talk to my boss. So it was usually I'm buying a small position in a stock, something that I'm doing work on, trying to gather more uh, intel about before I have uh, conviction to make it a bigger position. Right. And I calculated and bought a 0.9% position in our portfolio in this stock, Kronos. And I can tell you, really looking back at the moment, why did I do it? And I think I just rationalized it. And then let me, let me hold off on that for station identification, Tom, because I do want to talk about that. You are listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest is Tom Harden. Tom, just before the station ID, you talked about a Harvard professor named Clay Christensen, who wrote a wonderful book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Explain that concept. So I want our listeners to understand about what he called the marginal cost. Right. In layman terms, just this once. So in, in Christensen's book, he talked about playing uh, college basketball in England. Hmm? And he was very religious, and they were going to play the championship game uh, in sort of the uh, analogy of the NCAA tournament here. It was going to be on a Sunday. And he was thinking about, well, should I just do this once and you know, go against my religious beliefs? And he ultimately made the right decision and did not play on Sunday for, what, you know, for his religious beliefs. And he talks about once you rationalize you know, just doing it once, and that opens up this whole door where the rest of your life, you can say just this once. And he makes the point that his whole life, he's encountered just these once situations and has shied away from that. But he said when he went back to one of his reunions at Harvard Business School, I believe two people that were very well thought of in his class were actually had served prison time. Indeed. And you go back to, again, breaking the law, maybe saying, I'm not sure what their cases were, but just this once. So that to you, Tom, you had your just this once moment. And I failed the test. I made the trade. I still thought of myself as a great guy when I placed these trades. Right. Uh, there's a great professor out there on YouTube, Dan Ariely, who talks about fudge factor. Indeed. I would encourage anybody to watch his talks. Yeah, it's a great one. We all want to think of ourselves as good people. We want to cheat up to the point we can do that. Rarely would it ever escalate to something like this. But that was my line of thinking. I went home and had dinner with my wife after these trades thinking, I knew I broke the law, but I wasn't hurting anybody. Right. And really what I did here is make a decision in isolation. Um, didn't talk to my boss, didn't talk to anybody, didn't talk to any mentor, that type of thing. Made the decision on my own to cross the very big line in my industry. Yeah, and, and at the beginning of our conversation, I described the dramatic moment where yes. you just did when the FBI approached you even more than a decade ago and you're describing your activities. Was it as simple as, okay, I have this whatever information, buy? Is that it? It's just that simple. I'm going to buy 0.9% of this stock. I'm done with it. I'm good. Move on to the next one. Is that how it happens? When it happened four times in 2007, just this way, the tips, 
I was conflicted. I waited on the information a few days or a week before making that first trade. The problem is once you say just this once, it becomes easy to do it more than once. Once that line is crossed, my boss didn't say anything. To my knowledge, this behavior was rampant in the industry at that time. It became easy to do it three more times. All four were 0.9% positions. What I personally made on these trades, the price of professional suicide at 29 years old was $46,000. The cost of an automobile. Yeah. I want to get to that consequence in just a second, but I would like to investigate another line here. I'd imagine you were going home feeling however you did, and then one day the FBI came and confronted you. Was that a relief or was that, oh my God, I'm in trouble? A little bit of both. The last trade was September of 2007. So July 8th, 2008, almost a year later, I'm dropping off my dry cleaning at 6.30 in the morning at 55th and 8th, about to get a cab to work. Stepped on the sidewalk and this agent said, are you Tom? And almost immediately I knew what this was about, even though the trades had passed. Mm -hmm. And he said that he knew that I was down visiting my nephew in Atlanta, my baby nephew, and it said his name at his baptism two days early. Before that, can I come sit down with the agents? They said, we know about your four trades. We know this about your family. Tom, we're working on some bigger cases in your industry. You have the opportunity right now to help us get some of these big wigs we want. It's going to help you. So I felt shocked and My first thought was, you know, what is my family going to say about this? What is my wife going to say? What are my parents going to say? That was my first thought before even thinking about jail time or being a convicted felon. And then I thought, oh, my God, this is going to impact my career. (laughs) Of course it did. Well, were you feeling better or worse? Uh, I was feeling pretty bad that day. I would say that that was the worst day of my life. But that afternoon, I went, uh, as a good Catholic, went to confession at St. Patrick's. Yeah, we can and, laugh about it 10 years yeah, later, but yeah, I can't yeah, imagine time, you were laughing at the wasn't time. wasn't laughing at the time. Yeah. I told the priest everything, and he was probably thinking, you know, why did I have to get this guy? Uh, but he, he said, Tom, it sounds like 99% of your life, you've towed the line and done the right thing. This 1% of your life on these four trades, you really made bad choices. But the choices that you make going forward are going to define who you are and the legacy that you leave to your future children start making wise choices now. And I called the FBI and said, I'm ready to work with you guys, but what does it even mean to work with you? And the FBI said, you're going to have to wear a body wire for the FBI. And so for two years, I worked with the FBI undercover, trying to get some of these big wigs they wanted in my industry in conversations. I talked to you, maybe Chuck, if I knew you from the industry about a trade that you had made a year or two ago that I suspected you had information, illicit information on, material, non-public information, but I wasn't sure. But if you were a very good trader, if your hit rate was very high on one stock, I kind of assumed that you're probably getting information. So I'm trying to talk to you. The FBI would coach me how to ask you questions to get you to remember that and talk about it. What would you say if you were ever asked, Chuck, why you made that trade? And of course, people were looking at me like, why is this guy asking me such a pointed question sometimes? The wire that I wore, if people remember, now I'm dating myself, but the old Blackberry, it was about the size of that battery we remember. Yeah. And it just fit in my front of my shirt pocket. And for two years, I went over the country to conferences, to Starbucks here, meeting with people of interest in the industry who the FBI uh, wanted to talk to. So you're speaking to someone who innocently thinks they're speaking to you, and you've got a Blackberry in your pocket, which most of us did carry around. Yeah. But in fact, you were trained by the FBI in exchange for what? 
There was no deal on the table. I didn't talk to an attorney for a year. I worked with the FBI with no attorney. Finally, a year into it, the FBI said, Tom, time to talk to an attorney. Um, I found an attorney, spoke to him. He said, Tom, you're supposed to hire me the first day the FBI approaches you on the street. And you have the right to remain yeah. silent, but you, obviously said, you didn't. I said, it's my first time doing this. <laughs> so I'm just sort of <laughs> taking, taking orders <laughs> hey, from the FBI. Hey, I don't FBI. know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done yes, it before. Yes, you don't. <laughs> yeah. So taking orders from the FBI, I thought at the end of the day, taking orders would be the best course of action. Uh, but kind of shocking uh, to never talk to an attorney for a year, just to wear a wire with the FBI. And, and you accepted on faith, absent any kind of legal advice, I'll just do what they said. Yeah. You must have been terrified. I was just taking orders. It was during the financial crisis. Most right. of these conversations were 2008, 2009. Right. So already doing terrible at work, also still working during 2008. So I'd go to work, terrible year in the markets. Right. Um, go out, talk to people at Starbucks or have a, a, an arranged meetup, ask them a line of questioning. The FBI would listen to it later and sometimes say, you're not doing a good job. You're filling the silence, Tom. Like if I'm nervous and I'm asking you a question and you're not saying anything, I'm just filling the silence because I'm nervous. But then I said, you know, I've never done this before. So, so Right. But now yeah. you're going about your day. You've got a different mission. Yeah. You're yeah. wearing an FBI shirt under the covers, yeah. so to speak. Were you employed? I was employed for a year. I right. cooperated with the FBI for two years undercover the first year I was employed. Right. Wow. Well, just um, if I may just put into context for our listeners, um, there were other people that were involved, some iconic brands, for instance, Martha Stewart's probably the best example, where I think it was 2009. She had been engaged in insider trading and ultimately went to jail for five months, not because of the trading. Right. I think if I remember, it's because she lied about it. She lied to the FBI. The one decision I made that worked out was not lying to the FBI. I always get asked about, you know, when did the lying stop? What I was doing was lying to myself, and that's rationalization. Again, the person I lied to was myself, convincing myself that these trades were okay to do. Uh, when the FBI approached me, I didn't obstruct justice, which is what Martha Stewart went to prison for, lying to right. the FBI. Well, you did not... Well, let me back up. When all this was said and done, did you... You did not serve jail time. That's right. I helped the FBI build 20 of the 80 cases that they built in Operation Perfect Hedge. Um, so because of that, and because it took six years to be sentenced, I pled guilty in 2009. My name was became public. Tipper X became public in 2010. So my FBI code name, when I gave my guilty plea, I was still working with them. They called me Tipper X. Right. Tipper X became public January of 2010. So we're on the 10-year anniversary here. I was finally sentenced in 2015. It took six years to be sentenced. Wow. So, and were you still cooperating with the FBI uh, during that time? Up until January 2010 when Tipper X was revealed. And, of course, my cooperation was over. Um, the scariest thing, there was one situation where one guy that I wanted, the FBI wanted, I got in 15 conversations over a year. He was saying nothing. One Sunday, he lived in a suburb of Manhattan. I lived in Manhattan. He said he wanted to have dinner with me on Sunday. He wanted to talk. I met the FBI at Grand Central. They gave me the wire. I took the train out to the suburb, and this guy said, Tom, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. We're going swimming at my mother's house. And I would say the show The Sopranos was popular that summer. So I thought, oh my God, what's this guy going to do? I can't be taken off my shirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I excused myself, went to the restroom in his house, took the wire out, put these swim trunks on. So it was the two of us walking out to this pool. It was so quiet. There was a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. I'm thinking, oh my God, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? And he grabs a tennis ball. We're playing this awkward game of catch. 
and he says, I have to ask you one question. Have you been approached by the SEC? And the SEC brings civil monetary cases. The FBI brings the criminal cases. So Securities Exchange Commission, Securities Exchange Commission right. versus Federal right. Bureau of Investigation. So I said, no, not the SEC. And this guy was actually never charged because there was never a wire conversation. Right. So that was the scariest I ever felt. Uh, Tom, my heart is beating. I'm picturing, you know, the scene of a movie, but yeah. this was all real stuff. Well, the obvious question. How has this changed your life personally, professionally, and in any other manner? Yeah, it's, um, it's what I call self-inflicted career decimation. Uh, I'm very lucky that the FBI reached out to me three years ago. And when they called, I thought, oh, my God, what do these guys want now? Uh, they gave me the idea to go out and speak about my experience as a young, eager professional. And so the last three years, I've been going all over the world talking to groups about how we can rationalize situations, how we do things that we're not hurting uh, others, that type of thing. If you're in a self-inflicted, life-altering situation, not even in finance, the situation can define you the rest of your life. And society will always define me by what, what I did, these four trades. I can't change that. But I don't define myself by that anymore. I define myself now in the work I'm doing today, talking to companies, talking to associations and colleges. This is your transformation. This is it. But this is a new D. You're developing in different ways. Yeah, so, so you've gone from define... To it can destroy you. Destroy. And when the FBI approached me that summer, three people that summer killed themselves when the FBI approached them. That you think your life is over. I don't think I had, I wasn't that dark for me, but I'm sure it was very dark. Or it can develop you. And I just turned 42, and this happened 29. And I've had this accelerated life experience, I think, <laughs> into these sort of 12, 13 years of experience. And it really has, I think, developed me into somebody completely different. Now, do I catch myself rationalizing in not about crimes or the situations in life all the time, but I'm more aware of that, I think, going through this. You must have gained a great deal of self-awareness along the way. And if I could talk to anybody young, I think it's important to have a mentor. Yeah, actually, um, so let's, let's, yeah. let's in, in, in the time we have remaining, we always ask ourselves, what do we want our listeners to think? What do we want them to feel? And the important part, what do we want them to do with all of this? Yeah. So let, let, let's start. What, what do you want them to think? Um, you know, you're, you're not above making one decision uh, to cross that line and ultimately potentially be in a situation I was in. So never feel like you're above making one decision where things could go, you know, the way you don't want it to go. Yeah. Um, we all rationalize with being more thoughtful about when we're doing it. But to people in their 20s, get a mentor. If I had talked to anybody outside my firm and said, you won't believe the behavior I'm seeing, this woman just called me with this information. If you were my mentor, Tom, why would you ever do that? You have a great job at 29. You're a good guy. It was very easy for me to override my opinion of myself. I'm a good guy. I can still do this. If you're telling me that, it's harder for me to do that if you're telling me that because I'd be disappointing you psychologically. Right. right. So it's important to have a mentor. It's important to think longer term. I was very short term focused on my career and... I always tell people now, think about it's your 80th birthday. What do you want people to be saying about you, your friends and your family? Think about that today in your 20s. Right. Think about and then sort of bring that back to where you are today. Sort of look at where you are and you want to be there. And, and, and I suspect that every time anybody faces that just this once moment, yeah, that's where your advice comes and in. And that's the just this once part. And I was also very focused on sort of what people thought about me. Who cares what people think about you? So when I when I placed that trade, there was some puffery involved. Where I went out to the conference the next week and told the guys engage in this behavior, I knew about the tip last week, and they said, "Tom, 
you do real work, you never, you never, you don't know about this stuff. It's our world. I said, I know about the next one. Puffery, short-term focus. It's just pitfalls that we can fall into. Well, Tom, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I am grateful for the time you've taken to come into the studios of Talk Radio 77 WABC and, and for sharing the story and the amount of vulnerability. I, I'd imagine it just must take an immense amount of courage to have it revealed every time. It's been going great, Chuck. If I had heard this story in my 20s, it probably would be my story. And it's been such a great opportunity the last three years to fly all over the world and talk to groups and be very candid and vulnerable. And where can people find you for anyone interested? Um, so my website is TipperX, my FBI code name, T-I-P-P-E-R-X.com. And there's all the information there. You have listened to the latest episode of A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. Thank you so much for listening in. And Tom, grateful for your time. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Chuck. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.